funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a deadly weekend in Gaza, over a dozen IDF soldiers and hundreds of Palestinians killed as Israel's prime minister doubles down on destroying Hamas. Unless there is a ceasefire, that risk of a wider war with the U.S. included in it is just growing. Plus, path repairs. Renovations are set to begin in Jersey City, but it could impact thousands and come at a high price. It's the complete opposite of what everybody wants. You know, everybody wants more frequent service. The demand is there. Also, hunger in New Jersey. Food pantries continue to see high demand this holiday season amid the rising cost of living in the state. It's hard to get an exact number, but around three quarters of a million people in the state of New Jersey who are food insecure. And it's Patriots Week. The battles that turn the tide of the Revolutionary War are celebrated here in the Garden State. I think it's a fantastic story that people don't see and don't talk about. Um, they don't realize the battlefield is still here. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venosi. Good evening and thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Joanna Gagas in for Brianna Venosi. While many of us took a break to celebrate the Christmas holiday, there was no break in the fighting in Gaza. This weekend was one of the deadliest since the war began, with new airstrikes in central Gaza hitting neighborhoods and killing at least 70 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, that estimates more than 20,000 people have died so far, leading to new calls for a peace agreement between Israel and Hamas. Egypt presented a plan this weekend to to the Israeli war cabinet that would include the release of all Israeli hostages as well as create a Palestinian government structure in Gaza and the West Bank that would include Hamas. It's one of several plans that have been proposed recently but rejected. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has only doubled down on his commitment to destroy Hamas. Palestinian protesters took to the streets around New Jersey and New York over the Christmas holiday, one group organizing in the Short Hills Mall on Christmas Eve, and another group of Palestinian supporters outside St. Patrick's Cathedral in Midtown Manhattan yesterday, calling for Christmas to be canceled so long as the fighting in Gaza continues. Meanwhile, tension in Iraq escalated yesterday when the U.S. fired retaliatory airstrikes against militants who first fired drone strikes on U.S. soldiers stationed in Iraq, injuring two American soldiers and leaving one in critical condition. So what role can or will diplomacy play as this war enters its 11th week? Trita Parsi is an expert on geopolitics in the Middle East and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft that promotes diplomacy in U.S. foreign policy. He joins me now to discuss. Great to have you with us tonight. We see renewed calls now for this peace agreement to happen between Israel and Hamas, several proposals on the table. Yet uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says that he will not stop until Hamas is destroyed, pa the Palestinian society is de-radicalized. First, is that, are those goals even possible? And what role can diplomacy play in either leading to a peace agreement or to those goals that Netanyahu himself has outlined? 
Well, they're certainly possible, but what Netanyahu is doing right now is making them less and less possible. We're seeing major radicalization taking place in Gaza right now because of the indiscriminate manner that the Israelis are bombing Gaza and the very, very large number of civilians being killed. I mean, we know that from all of our own experiences in Iraq, in Syria, in Afghanistan, that civilian deaths tend to be the exact thing that organizations like Hamas will use to recruit more people. We saw that from Iraq in which uh, internally Donald Rumsfeld was complaining that for every insurgent the U.S. was killing, three more were being created because of the manner that this war was uh, conducted. So what Netanyahu is doing, frankly, is making the problem much, much worse. Is, Israel says that they have the right to defend themselves. I think the majority of the world uh, agrees with that. And yet, at the same time, we see Netanyahu blaming Hamas, really, for the, I guess, more than 20,000 at this point, Palestinians who have been killed in this conflict. Um, is there, should there be a different response from Israel? When you say that this problem, their response is only making it worse, is there a more diplomatic response that would be more appropriate? Of course, absolutely. There's absolutely nothing that says that Israel has no choice but to do things as it is doing right now. Uh, it could have used special forces to go in and try to take out Hamas leadership, etc. It chose not to. And if we listen carefully to what uh, Netanyahu is saying, particularly on Israeli TV, and may not be saying this uh, in English language media, is that he is uh, uh, pursuing a path of what he calls voluntary immigration. Uh, from Gaza. What it, essentially, this is ethnic cleansing. He is trying to move the population from Gaza uh, into Egypt. And, and part of the strategy of the Israelis has been to just demolish big parts of Gaza in order to make sure that no one ever can return there. So there's absolutely nothing that says that this is the only path that Israel could have pursued. But I think it is fair to say that Israel's options have been limited because it insists on continuing the uh, occupation of Gaza and, uh, and the Palestinians. As long as that is the case, Israel is going to be engulfed in this cycle of violence. And the only way out of that is to actually have a true uh, two-state solution. We saw, as many uh, folks here in the U.S. were celebrating Christmas, we saw protests popping up in New York and New Jersey. Um, and just such a deadly assault uh, during this very holy time in what is what many perceive as the most holy region uh, of the world. What role do you believe the U.S. should be playing at this point to either encourage a ceasefire or a peace agreement or some different approach by Israel? Well, the United States absolutely should be pushing for a ceasefire. The last thing America needs is another war in the Middle East. True, and sir. right now, unless there is a ceasefire, that risk of a wider war with the U.S. included in it is just growing. Thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you so much. The Hudson County Prosecutor's Office is being accused of violating the rights of inmates at the Hudson County Jail for years, according to a new lawsuit filed in federal court earlier this month. The lawsuit, brought by an inmate named Yersil Kidwa, claims that county prosecutors illegally recorded phone calls between inmates and their attorneys. According to the lawsuit, call recording began in May 2020 when the Hudson County Jail was closed to visitors due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, recording these calls is prohibited by state law and, the lawsuit argues, is a violation of constitutional rights. The defendants named in the suit include Hudson County Prosecutor Esther Suarez, 
former assistant prosecutor Jane Weiner, who is now a superior court judge, the head of the Hudson County Department of Corrections, and several detectives who were working at the time. Now, Kid Wah, who filed the lawsuit on behalf of himself and inmates in similar situations, is currently serving a six-year sentence for sexual assault. He left the Hudson County Jail in 2023 and is now held at the New Jersey Adult Diagnostic Treatment Center in Woodbridge. If Kidwa's allegations are proven to be true, new doubts would be cast on dozens of cases in Hudson County. The lawsuit asks the court to order Hudson County officials to stop recording these phone calls, institute new training to make sure the alleged recording does not happen in the future, and to award damages. Jennifer Salitti has been confirmed by the legislature to be New Jersey's next public defender, succeeding Joseph Krakora, who served in the role since 2011. Salitti's term will begin on February 1st and will last five years. Governor Murphy nominated Salitti in November, highlighting her 17 years of service working within the public defender's office, including in leadership roles there. It's a job that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but plays a critical part in New Jersey's criminal justice system. Jennifer Salitti sat down with me recently to share her priorities as she prepares to take over this office. Jennifer, great to have you with us. Uh, congratulations on your confirmation. Um, what is the role of the public defender here in the state of New Jersey? Thank you so much. So the role of the public defender here in the state of New Jersey is to oversee an agency of 1,200 employees, 650 of which are attorneys, and it is our responsibility to provide counsel to people throughout the state who cannot afford counsel on their own. And most people, when they think of us, think of us as criminal defense attorneys, and we do certainly represent people in criminal proceedings, and that's the largest percentage of our work. But we also represent both parents and children in child welfare proceedings and people in mental health courts, in recovery courts, and in some other smaller sub-practice areas throughout the state. We know when we look at the criminal justice system that um, it can be costly and too often favors those who have wealth. What is guaranteed for a person who needs to access some kind of defense? So under our state and our federal constitution, uh, there is a constitutional guarantee of a lawyer when you are charged in a criminal case. So our lawyers work in our superior courts in the state of New Jersey, representing people charged with indictable offenses. Most people commonly refer to those as felony offenses throughout the state. And that can be everything from lower level offenses like drug offenses all the way up to murder cases. Now, in, in February, you'll be replacing Joe Krikora, who served as our public defender uh, before you. You, in this role, have the opportunity to affect and, and um, implement some public policy, or I should say recommend public policy. What are your priorities? So I, I should start by clarifying that our role really is to represent clients in courtrooms and in cases. So we are representing one client at a time in courtrooms across the state every day. However, through that representation, we obviously do have a lot to say about public policy. And I'm hoping that what our role can be is advising the people who make policy, be that legislators, the governor, other advocacy groups, and community members throughout the state on how the policies that they are creating affect people who are charged in cases or a litigant in a case on the ground. In terms of the world of uh, the criminal legal system, some of our priorities are changes in jury selection, the expansion of recovery and mental health courts, as well as police accountability and some police reform. 
Jennifer, how often are you actually testifying in hearings? So um, not not often, but I see our office doing a lot more of that in the future. Um, there are a number of criminal justice policies, of child welfare policies, mental health and recovery court policies that are being debated every day in the legislature. I mean, just this past couple of weeks, we've seen many of them. Um, we historically have not had as much of a voice in that, um, but I see us as advisors to these policymakers, and I see us doing more testifying in the future uh, on, on issues that matter to our clients. Thank you so much, Jennifer Saletti. Best of luck to you on this new role. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Repairs of the Grove Street Path Station are scheduled to begin at the start of the year, and that's going to mean some pain for commuters because trains will skip that station on weekends for the first half of the year. Jersey City officials are pressing the Port Authority to reconsider their plan before residents and businesses see their lives and livelihoods compromised. Senior political correspondent David Cruz has more on what's to come. Just as PATH weekend ridership was getting back to pre-pandemic levels, PATH service, which most PATH riders will tell you was woefully inadequate to begin with, is facing another significant cutback that will impact commuters and local businesses. Beginning January 6th, the Port Authority, which runs the bi-state service, will begin weekend closures at the much-used Grove Street Station. Councilman James Solomon represents this part of the city. This closure of Grove Street is a reversion to, I think, the old ways of doing things. Uh, late notice to uh, elected officials in the community about a huge change to, to people's lives. And uh, at least to date, no you know real solution to uh, allow people to access transit on weekends um, that isn't going to take them you know 30 extra minutes out of their way. The $16 million plan announced just before Christmas includes station painting, replacing floor tiles, restoring support columns, and installing new lighting. The work will close the westbound tracks to Journal Square and Newark on weekends from January to March, and then from April to June to New York and Hoboken. We've determined that getting that work done at Grove Street in a reasonable time frame will require partial closures over the weekend in order to maintain essential commuter service during the work week, says the Port Authority. Jimmy Lee is president of Safe Streets JC, a bike and mass transit advocacy group. He uses mass transit to travel to and from New York, Hoboken, and Newark. He says weekend service was terrible before, during, and now even after the pandemic. Path ridership on weekends, unlike weekdays, has recovered to nearly 100% of what it was pre-pandemic. The problem with these closures is there's two things. One, it's the complete opposite of what everybody wants. You know, everybody wants more frequent service. The demand is there. Um, and then second, if you want people to go one stop further and then come back, if you have to wait 40 minutes to do it, that's not reasonable. Mandy Edgecombe works weekends as a tour guide in Manhattan. She moved downtown to be closer to a path station. The closure is going to add time and expense to her commute. I'm going to have to account for at least an extra I don't know, half hour, 35 minutes uh, to, to just to get to work. I can see the World Trade Center as soon as I step out of my house. And it's going to take me how that, you know, that much longer just just to get to that point. Uh, what if it's snowing? How many uh, dollars in Ubers that I have to take to get to Exchange Place uh, in, in some kind of weather where I can't ride my bike? Solomon says the impact to small local business will be significant especially to restaurants and bars here, 
that count on big weekends to stay in the black. Uh, those businesses need the foot traffic. They need tourists. They need people who are coming to their restaurants to visit friends on weekends. Um, so we need that access for the small businesses. And then jobs, right? People work on the weekends. Uh, people need to get to their jobs, both at, in downtown Jersey City and then throughout the region. Switching the work to weekday overnights, adding shuttle buses and single track service are some of the suggestions offered to the Port Authority, none of which are planned at the moment. Advocates and city officials say they're going to keep the pressure on the Port Authority, but they better hurry up because they're running out of time. Closures are expected to start next weekend. In Jersey City, I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. Hunger and food insecurity are a problem for around 750,000 residents in New Jersey each year. And those needs are only heightened around the holidays as the cost of basic needs are coupled with the added costs of the season. But while many of us focus on the hungry during this time, food banks and pantries around the state work to meet those needs day in and day out. As part of our ongoing series, Hunger in New Jersey, Melissa Rose Cooper spoke with a few of them to better understand how great the need for food support in the state really is. We do dairy, cheese, um, milk, um, eggs. Um, we do proteins, chicken, beef, pork, fish, shrimp sometimes if our uh, suppliers have it. Uh, but most of the time it's uh, canned goods, dry goods, stuff like rice, pastas, uh, canned vegetables, sometimes frozen vegetables. Just some of the items available at this community food pantry in Newark. Known as Champion House Number 2, the United Community Corporation opened this location on South 18th Street earlier this year after Executive Director Craig Maynard says they noticed a rise in food insecurity. The pandemic kind of wiped away some of the, 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 the dust or the, the, the confusion on who actually needs and then so we started to see different faces, different demographics, um, especially when the city uh, shut down and uh, people were, weren't able to kind of travel and go to work. Um, we started seeing people with um, a, a higher level of income coming in because of the uncertainty of putting food on their own table. And rising inflation leading to higher costs for everyday necessities like rent and groceries, not making it any easier for many families. It's hard to get an exact number, but around three quarters of a million people in the state of New Jersey who are food insecure. Elizabeth McCarthy is the CEO and president for the Community Food Bank of New Jersey, which distributes over 100 million pounds of food a year to those 750,000 people. She says while the holiday season tends to shed light on the need for giving, Food insecurity is an issue facing families all year round. So the organization is also focused on addressing the root causes of hunger. Um, so we have several job training programs, um, culinary as well as warehouse training, um, to really try to get people into the workforce who aren't or give them sort of um, some skills to be able to increase their wages over time, get jobs with benefits. Um, we also spend a lot of time educating people about benefits for which they're eligible. So many people are eligible for SNAP, used to be food stamps, it's now called SNAP, um, who don't know they're eligible or who don't know how to apply. Uh, so we actually go out, we have a mobile unit that goes or we partner with other organizations and send people to do hands-on assistance to get people to help applying. Um, we have programs in schools for after-school programs during the year and then in summer programs um, to feed children there. 
uh, and send home food to families that need it also. We know that if a child's food insecure, probably the family needs help also. So we have family packs that we send home for the weekend, um, really trying to attack it from many different places. Getting people back on their feet is also an important goal for the United Community Corporation's pantry. We want to know why they've come and how we can help them not come again. And so uh, a lot of times it's, um, you know, changes in jobs, maybe hours were cut, maybe someone got laid off in the household and then they, they want to make sure that they can fill the refrigerator so that it's a coverage for them and their family during that time. And so uh, people depend on these supplements and we're not giving out enough food to feed the whole family for the whole week, but we're trying. United Community Corporation's pantry is open six days a week, but the organization also provides several community fridges across the city where residents can access food 24 hours a day. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. In our Spotlight on Business report tonight, relief for breweries is coming to an end as strict rules are set to go back into effect that limit how they can run their business. Now, breweries in the state have been restricted from serving food or holding more than 25 events a year, and they can't pour a beer before giving customers a tour of their facility. But those rules were relaxed earlier this year as the legislature moved forward a bill that would remove them for good. But Governor Murphy vetoed it because it didn't include broader liquor license reforms. And now the deadline is fast approaching for those restrictions to go back into effect on January 1st. And the legislature's already out on break until January. Many breweries have said the uncertainty is pushing them out of business. And the Brewers Guild of New Jersey is requesting a six-month extension on those relaxed rules. Turning to Wall Street, stocks were up today in this final week of trading for the year. Here's a look at how they closed. night holds a special significance in our state and nation's history. It's the night that General George Washington turned the tide of the Revolutionary War and set the stage for his eventual victory over the Hessians, the Germans fighting for the British Army. And it all happened in our state's capital. Ted Goldberg is in Trenton for a tour that's part of Patriots Week going on today through December 31st, where a significant slice of our history comes to life. Look at this guy, has got a hot dog. Ralph Siegel is great at pointing out interesting stuff on the streets of Trenton. They don't realize the battlefield is still here. Uh, the streets are still here exactly as they were. Well, not this one in particular, but the other ones were. Siegel's tour of Trenton is part of Patriot Week, an effort to help teach New Jerseyans not just where to find statues of hot dog vendors, but more about the important role their state played in the Revolutionary War. Washington's goal is to be in Morristown. The red boxes represent two brigades. He's got to get these pieces off the board. And that's the Battle of Trenton. Siegel starts his tour by setting up his characters, including George Washington. 44 years old, superb horseman, the height of his powers. And what happened after the famous crossing of the Delaware, when Washington's ragtag army scored a shocking win over German troops? The tactics in the Battle of Trenton is to deprive the enemy of a fair field of battle. So these Germans come marching out into the street, artillery fire, they march back, and here comes the barbarian horde charging at them. And they're like, they don't even know who these guys are. 
Washington's approach shattered the German defense and led to a huge momentum shift in the war. Artillery fire coming down the street and he pulls back and he sees instantly what Washington's doing. Deprive the enemy of a fair field of battle. That cannonball comes out of a six pounder fully loaded and fired at about 700 miles an hour. It's about the speed of sound and it's skipping down the street deprive the enemy of a fair field of battle. By spring, the British would have come in and cleaned up and we would not be standing here talking about the United States of America. Patrick Murray is one of the state's esteemed political pollsters and a board member of Crossroads of the American Revolution, a group working with New Jersey Historical Commission to improve the state's historical sites ahead of 2026. New Jersey's planning on a series of celebrations honoring the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. It's going to take some money to invest in some of the, the museums that we have in the area, kind of bringing them together uh, in, a, in a cohesive kind of brand so everybody understands that how important these all were and how they all work together. When they did the Declaration of Independence, a rider comes to the courthouse steps and reads the Declaration of Independence out loud. Siegel also does tours of Gettysburg, and he enjoys teaching people about American history. I'm glad people come to it, and I'm happy to be able to kick it off. And bringing light to battles that don't get the lion's share of attention. Very much overshadowed. They pay all attention to Jockey Hollow and Morristown. Uh, National Park Service, Miss Trenton, went up there and established the first historic park in the United States at, in Morristown. They should have done it here. Morristown's where they went the rest after fighting in Trenton. Last year, Governor Murphy signed a bill allocating $25 million to invest in Revolutionary War sites here in the state, setting the scene for a massive celebration in 2026. In Trenton, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. And that's going to do it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Joanna Gagas for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow night. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.